Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Sharissa Fong. My subject this morning I have entitled Running on Empty, and I'm a little bit OCD, so I'm just going to move this back. That's better. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. You'll see why maybe later. Let's open with a word of prayer. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the Sabbath. We thank you for bringing us here this morning to worship you. And as we open our Bibles and we study your word, we do not do this without first inviting the Holy Spirit to come and speak to our hearts. We pray that the teaching from your word might be very clear. I pray that the message that we hear might be very personal. I pray, Lord, that none of us will be distracted, but that we will hear the voice of Jesus speaking clearly to our hearts. And I pray that when we leave the church today, that we will leave changed because we've spent time with Jesus in his word. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time that we can now have together. In Jesus' name, amen. The story is told of a woman who frantically rang her insurance agent one day, and she said, Sir, can I please increase the insurance coverage on my house? And he said, Madam, that's, that's fine. You can do that. There are just a couple of papers which we will need you to sign. If you could just come in, perhaps, within the, following, within the week, we can get you to sign those papers, and you can increase the insurance coverage on your house. She said, Well, I need to do it now. Can I do it over the phone? He repeated himself, Madam, there are some papers which we need you to sign. Uh, Perhaps I can come by to your house tomorrow and you can sign those appropriate papers. She said, no, you don't understand. My house is on fire and I want to increase the insurance coverage on my house right now. Friends, there are some things in this world which we can put off till tomorrow. But there are other things in this world which we cannot put off. And one of those things is being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Over and over again in my Bible, I read that Jesus calls us to watch and pray, to be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. And so as I think about the second coming of Jesus, my mind immediately turns to the Gospel of Matthew. And of course, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm thinking of the neighborhood of Matthew 24 and 25, in Matthew 24, we see the signs of the second coming of Jesus. In Matthew 25, we find Jesus talking about the preparation Preparation that needs to be done for his coming. In Matthew 24, we see events that are happening in the world. In Matthew 25, we see the condition of God's church. In Matthew 24, we have what's happening out there. And in Matthew 25, we see what is happening in here inside the church. And so you will recall in Matthew 24, after Jesus lists all the signs of his second coming, and of course the ultimate sign In verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus says in verse 42 of Matthew 24, he says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Over and over again, if you read these two chapters, 24 and 25, this is the call from the heart of God. Watch and pray. Be ready for the coming of Jesus. In Matthew 25, there are three parables. Well, two parables and a definite word picture. We have the parable of the ten virgins. We have the parable of the talents. And then we have the word picture of the sheep 
and the goats. All three of these stories are all about preparation and the need for us to be prepared for Jesus to come. But Matthew 25 is especially important because this is not just preparation to to be in heaven. This is preparation for a church that is waiting for the second coming of Jesus. And that is what we are right now. So these parables are extremely applicable to you and I this morning. Is that clear? All right. Let me read to you a quote from the Review and Herald, August 1890. She said, I am often referred to the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom were wise and five foolish. This parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter, for it has a special application to this time. And like the third angel's message has been fulfilled and will continue to be present truth till the close of time. Did you catch that? Heaven thinks that this parable, the parable of the ten virgins, is so important for you and I to understand that God brought this parable to his end time prophet's mind over and over and over again. The message of Matthew 25 is an end time message. It is a message. It is present truth for God's end time people. Now, I wasn't sure if Hillview people say amen. So sometimes I like an amen. So when I do this, that means amen. Because <laughs> Australians, we don't, we're not very responsive, so we need a little indication. So that was an amen moment. This is something that at the very heart of the preparation for the coming of Jesus, what we read here in Matthew chapter 25. This is no time for us to be fooling around, playing games, and just playing church. This is serious time which we are living in. So now let's go to Matthew 25. And if you haven't got your Bible out, Matthew 25, verse 1. Matthew 25, verse 1. The Bible says, and these are the words of Jesus, they're in red. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. The kingdom of heaven here is speaking of God's church like ten virgins. Now, why ten? Why not seven, which is a good Bible number? Why not twelve? Why does Jesus speak of ten virgins? Well, first of all, this might be interesting to you. I didn't know this, but if you do some research, ten was a very significant number in Judaism. The number 10 was the smallest number of Jewish men that were needed in order to compose a Jewish synagogue. So if you wanted to plant a church, you needed 10 men. Okay, you had to have 10. So this is the first indication that this is a church number or that that Jesus is speaking of a church right here. But not only that, this parable is speaking of uh, 10 virgins. And of course, you are Bible students. A woman in Bible prophecy represents a church. And here we have 10 virgins and they are virgins, which means they are symbolic of a pure church. So the issue for this church is not doctrine. They have no corrupt doctrines. They're not battling with apostasy or error or traditions of the enemy. This is a pure church. And these ladies, they have in their hands, what? Lamps. What does a lamp represent in the Bible? 
The word of God, absolutely. Psalms 119, verse 105, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So here is God's end time church. Don't miss, don't miss this. This is God's end time church with the word of God in their hands. And they are going out to light the way for the coming of the bridegroom. They are anxiously awaiting something, the bridegroom. They are Adventists. This is an Adventist church looking forward to the soon return of Jesus. They do not have issues with corrupt doctrine. They do not have issues with false teachings. This is a parable relating to God's end time remnant church church. Are we all on the same page? Yes. Good. Notice what happens. Verse two. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. Back to verse two. Five of them were wise and five were foolish. It is interesting to me that Jesus does not choose to contrast the good and the bad. Or he's not contrasting between the righteous and the unrighteous, the holy and the unholy, the just and the unjust, the faithful and the unfaithful. The contrast in this parable is made between the wise and the foolish. So question, what makes the wise wise? And what makes the foolish foolish? Were the wise wise because they were wide awake? No, if we keep reading on in the same parable, we notice verse 5 tells us that they all slumbered and slept while there was a delay in the coming of the bridegroom. So that's remarkable too. Just let that sink in for a moment. Here is God's true church, God's end time church awaiting the coming of Jesus. And how many of them sleep? The whole church is pictured as sleeping. Evidently, there is a spiritual drowsiness that overcomes God's people at the end of time. And this drowsiness comes from the culture that is around them. Friends, don't mistake this. Don't miss this. But evidently, the secular culture that is around us today, it influences us. And it can impact us if we are not grounded in the word of God. But even though God's church is pictured as being asleep at the end of time... Come over, keep your finger in the book of Matthew, but come over to the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 60, notice with me what the book of Isaiah says in verse 1, 1 to 3. Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3. This is a wonderful, wonderful text. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3. The Bible says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is wonderful. And I can hear you all saying amen in your hearts. Because even though... The, the church is sleeping on the knife edge of eternity, at the edge of eternity, before Jesus comes again. The Bible tells us that there will be a revival in God's people. They will arise and they will shine and Gentiles will come to their light. This is wonderful, wonderful news for us. God's church will awake. 
And the Spirit of God is going to move in our midst. And as God's people are illuminated by the Holy Spirit, they will light this world with the truth and they will warm this world with the love of God and the world will be impacted. Lives will be changed. God's kingdom will grow. Friends, there is no other reason for the existence of the Seventh-day Adventist church in this world than to reveal the light of, and glory of God's character to the world and to prepare the world for the coming of the bridegroom. That's why we exist. Amen. <laughs> Amen. But again, verse 5, the, the Bible tells us, but while the bridegroom delayed, they all slumbered and they all slept. If you look at these words in the Greek, when it says they slumbered and they slept, they weren't just having a little nodding off to sleep. These virgins were sound asleep. They were having a good sleep. It was a deep sleep right here. And sadly, as we read on in the same parable, we find that the foolish virgins, while they awake, they miss out on the great revival, on the blessing of God at, at this time. And this is, this is remarkable to me and, and almost challenging and scary even because they're all members of the true church. They all believe the same truths of scripture. They're all waiting for the bridegroom to come. I mean, let's break this down. The foolish virgins probably live morally upright lives. They go to church on Sabbath. They come to meetings like this. They participate in witnessing at times. They go on mission trips even. They enjoy the company of the wise virgins. They're doctrinally sound in their thinking. But Jesus says they're foolish. What makes the wise wise? And what makes the foolish foolish? This is a very challenging parable to me personally. When I study it, I ask myself, am I foolish or am I wise? What are the characteristics of the foolish and what make the wise wise? That would be worth us looking at right now because there are chance, there's a possibility that someone walked into this church this morning as a foolish virgin, but you're going to leave a wise one. Someone came in here lukewarm, but by the time God's finished with you, you're going to leave on fire for Jesus Christ because I believe that there is power in the word of God and God is going to work on our hearts as we study this morning. And so we keep reading verse 3. What made them foolish? Verse 3 and 4, we've already read this, but we read it again. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. This is very interesting. Now, in ancient times, at least in a Jewish wedding, there were three stages to the Jewish wedding. There was first the engagement, which was a formal agreement made between the fathers. Then there was the betrothal. This was a ceremony in which mutual promises were exchanged. And then the third was the marriage. And this happened approximately a year later when the, bride when the bridegroom would come at an unexpected time to come and take his bride. Now, if you read Christ's Object Lessons, powerful, powerful book, wonderful book. If you haven't read it, get it on your smartphone and read it there. It's great. But if you read there, you'll find that when Jesus told this parable, she says he was actually watching a wedding procession 
taking place. So this parable is a slice of, out of the life of ancient times right there. And what would happen would be when the bridegroom would come, a cry would go out, the bridegroom comes, and the bridesmaids would go and they would take their lamps and they would light the way to the bridegroom's home. All the guests would go in, there'd be a big celebration and the door was shut. It's exactly what we read here. So this is straight from the times in which Jesus was living in. But the Bible says here that the foolish took their lamps, but they didn't do what? That's right. They didn't take any extra oil with them. So what they had, with the, if David Down was here, Pastor David Down, who comes to our church still, he's, I'm from Sydney, he's about 94, anyway, he might even be older than that, but he's as sharp as anything, and if he was here, he would tell me I'm correct. They have... Uh, little lamps and you put oil in the lamp the lamp burns but they had an extra flask which they had extra oil in so that when the oil ran out in the lamp they'd top it up and the lamp can keep burning okay so that's what the foolish didn't have they had lamps but the foolish didn't have the extra oil that they needed to keep the lamp burning that's significant because the foolish had some oil Notice verses 5 through to 7. Again, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. All of them, wise and foolish, wake up, trim their lamps. Verse 8. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. The foolish virgins had some oil, but they didn't have enough to light the way to the bridegroom's home. They lacked extra oil. Question, what does oil represent in the Bible? Holy Spirit. Very good. Now, you are students of the word, so you will know that this is not the only symbol that we find in Scripture to represent the Holy Spirit. There is fire. There is wind. There is water. All of these are symbols of the Holy Spirit. So why does God choose to represent the Holy Spirit as oil right here? I'd like to submit to you that there are three reasons why. That this, this choice is made. Number one, we find in the Bible that oil represents consecration. If you turn your eyes, and we haven't got time to read it there, but in Exodus 30, verse 30, is an example for you to look at later. But in the, in the um, time of the sanctuary, if anything was going to be put aside for holy use, or if it was going to be completely dedicated to God, consecrated to his service, they would anoint it with oil. So it represents consecration to God. And so, friends, I believe right here that God is calling for a people who are consecrated to him fully and completely, a people who are set apart from the way of the world completely because what matters most to them is to be completely surrendered to Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Represents total commitment to the kingdom of God. And who leads men and women to this wholehearted consecration? It's the Holy Spirit. We don't come of ourselves. God draws us to himself. That's the first uh, reason I believe that the oil is used here. The second reason why oil is represented here as the Holy Spirit is because oil represents healing. Now, you have to see this one. We do have time. In the book of Luke, chapter 10, again, keep your finger in Matthew. 
Luke chapter 10, verse 34, we find the parable of the Good Samaritan. And here in the parable of the Good Samaritan, notice what is mentioned, verse 34, Luke chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus says, so he went in, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. So here in this parable, oil was used for healing, to help bandage the wounds of that injured man. And so God is longing for a people who are totally consecrated to him. They're completely his, completely surrendered to him. And not only that, God is looking for a people who will allow him by his spirit to heal them of all of their unchristlike traits, to heal them of their arrogance, of their anger, of their bitterness, of their jealousy, of their pride, of their self-importance. He wants to heal them so that he has a people who are more interested in what God can do and then what they can do. Amen. Amen. I believe this. And I believe that God will have a people that are like this. The oil of the Spirit will just heal them of all jealousy and all bitterness. And I'm so excited as... I'm going to take a very good report back from your church to my church and tell them it's time to wake up at 5.30 in the morning and pray together because there is healing in prayer and praying together and when we allow God to work in our hearts together. So that's wonderful. So what's the first um, reason we, use, we find oil representing the spirit? Consecration. The second, healing. The third, it's very simple, oil represents illumination. No, no surprise there. Oil provides the basis for light. God's word is a lamp, and when it is filled, when, when we allow ourselves to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we are able to light the way for the coming of the bridegroom so that others can also find him. We light the way so that the world can also find Jesus, can find truth. So God is looking for a church, for a people completely consecrated to him healed fully and completely and a church that whose hearts are illuminated with the with the holy spirit as they study their bibles and they take the light of the gospel to the world around them to prepare a world to meet jesus verse 9 but the wise answered saying to the foolish when they said give us some of your oil the wise answered saying no lest there should not be enough for us and you But go rather to those who buy and sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who already went with him in, went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Those words at the end there, I do not know you have to be some of the saddest words in all the Bible. (sighs) Their intentions did not differentiate between them. All ten were doctrinally sound. All ten were waiting for the bridegroom to come. But the foolish five had no extra oil. And I read this and I see that the foolish five made three major mistakes Number one, they had some oil, but they didn't have 
enough. Now, how many of you have ever run out of petrol when you're driving? There's a few of you. It's never happened to me because I said at the beginning I'm slightly OCD. (laughs) And as soon as I see the light on the dashboard light up, I'm pulling over at the very next petrol station because I'm going to fill up. There's nothing in the world that will make me keep driving. If if the light comes on, it's a national emergency. (laughs) My mum... On the other hand, is not like me. She's a woman of great faith. My mum, the light will come on and she will drive on and on and she's never broken down or never run out of fuel. I don't know how she does it. She just knows when to, when to pull over. But every year, apparently, many people do get stranded because they run out of fuel. They just, they just ignore the little light on the dashboard and they run out of fuel. Well, here, the foolish virgins don't even run out. They just never had enough. They never had enough oil. Why? Because they were trusting in their past experiences. They were trusting in their past times when they had heard the voice of God, when they were close to God, and they trusted that those times would be enough to take them through to the bridegroom's home. But it was not, it was not so. They tried and failed to burn yesterday's oil today. Is it possible that you and I could be trusting in our past religious experience to be enough to carry us through to the coming of the bridegroom? Are you depending on an experience that you once had with Jesus in your walk with him? Or does your heart still burn every time when you open the word of God? Mrs. White says, we all need to gain a much deeper experience in the things of God than we have gained. Self is to die and Christ is to take possession of the soul temple. How is your devotional life with Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are there times where it's just you and him alone every day? That's what personal relationship is about. Do you sense his presence when you're on your knees and when you pray? Or is your prayer life just ritualistic and traditional? Friends, these foolish virgins trusted that their past experience was enough. And because they trusted in the past experiences that they once had with Jesus, their relationship with Jesus was superficial. It was only skin deep. And that's the second problem. They didn't have enough and their experience was superficial. It was only skin deep. I'm going to read to you a quote that just about startled me when I read it. Listen. The class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. I thought they were, but they're not. They have a regard for the truth. They have advocated the truth and witness, that is, they are attracted to those who believe the truth, but they have not yielded themselves to the Holy Spirit's working. They have not fallen upon the rock Christ Jesus and permitted their old nature to be broken up. She goes on, this is Christ's object lessons, by the way. This class are represented also by the stony ground hearers. They receive the word with readiness, but they fail of assimilating its principles. Its influence is not abiding. The spirit works upon man's heart according to his desire and constant, oh, sorry, consent implanting in him a new nature. But the class represented by the foolish virgins have been content with a superficial work. How are you content with a superficial work? 
Let's not be content with the superficial work in our hearts. Amen. God wants to do so much in our lives. And the third problem, they didn't have enough. The work in their hearts was just superficial. Their experience was superficial. And the third problem, they do not know God. This is the ultimate problem. They do not know God. Again, I quote, they do not know God. They have not studied his character. They have not held communion with him. Therefore, they do not know how to trust, how to look and live, and their service to God degenerates to a form. This is the ultimate issue. They do not have a relationship with Jesus. The oil of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which flows from heaven's sanctuary and its function is to point us to Jesus. They have neglected that work in their hearts. And as such, they miss out. They have not been healed of their old natures. The oil of the Holy Spirit, it it does not... Well, it prompts them, but their thoughts are still nominated by the old nature. The old thoughts and the old actions still dominate in their lives. And this is scary because on the outside, the foolish look fine. But on the inside, something is different. They have the word of God in their lamps and everybody thinks, what more do we need? But... Friends, there is obviously a difference between having the word of God in your hand to read and defend it and having the word of God in your heart to be transformed by it. Amen. There's a difference. It's one thing to be convicted, but we need to be changed by the message that we hear from God. And God can change your heart. Has the truth which you believe transformed your life to make you a different man or a different woman? to make you a different young person. In the parable of the ten virgins, the foolish do not know what genuine conversion is all about. But I have good news. I have to come and preach good news. We're at Venice. We preach the everlasting gospel. Good news is that there is no oil shortage in heaven. There's no oil crisis as far as heaven is concerned. There is an ample supply, and there's enough for all of us. Amen. But... Nobody else can have a personal relationship with Jesus for you. No one else can study God's word for you. No one else's prayers can substitute for yours. Just because you were raised in an Adventist home, just because you're raised in a Christian home, doesn't mean that it's all okay for you. It doesn't mean that you have a saving relationship with Jesus. Just because we sit next to somebody in church who we think is a man or a woman of great faith doesn't mean that it will rub off on us because we don't catch a relationship with Jesus like you catch a cold or you don't, you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You can't borrow a relationship with Jesus like you borrow a book from a library. It has to be personal. God has no grandchildren, only children. And every spiritual birth comes directly from him. So I've got to read this one because I like it. So if you're going to sing Faith of Our Fathers, you have to also be able to sing Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. It has to be personal between you and Jesus. Character cannot be borrowed. Character cannot be caught. It comes from time with Jesus. And that's why the wise say to the foolish, go to those who buy and sell oil. Go to those who buy and sell oil. And, sorry. Go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. Because God is the dispenser of oil and he is the one you need to turn to. And so we find today the great problem 
and the great danger for the foolish virgins is that in this time in which we are living right now, and I believe that Jesus is coming soon. Um, if you watch the news, if you see the headlines that are popping up on the, on the Internet about what's happening in the ecumenical side of things in this world, and there are incredible things that are happening. But the danger for us right now is that in, in this time in which we're living with, against this backdrop of all of these signs that are taking place, that you and I will put off to tomorrow the work that needs to be done in our lives today. That's the danger, that we will be like the foolish. The foolish were, were paralyzed by spiritual complacency. They were satisfied with a superficial work in their hearts when God wanted to do so much more in their lives. There's a fictitious story and it's told about a strategy meeting that Satan had with his demonic angels. They all came in and he said, all right, what's your strategy to deceive God's people? And they thought for a moment, then one angel stepped forward and he said, let's tell them there is no God. He said, that won't work. You crazy. Look around you. Have you looked up in the sky? There's the evidence of God is everywhere. It won't work. They'll never believe it. So they stopped and they thought again. Then another angel stepped forward and said, why don't we tell them there is no absolute truth? There is no truth. And the devil thought, yeah, that could work. But science is absolute truths, and you won't convince them all with that either. And so they stopped and they waited. And then one demonic angel stepped forward with a smile and he said, why don't we tell them there's no hurry? Why don't we tell them they have plenty of time? And that they don't have to pray today, they can pray tomorrow. They don't have to study their word, the Bible today, they can study it tomorrow. And then when he said that, the devil's face lighted up. Yes, let's tell them there's no hurry. Friends, never forget the words of Jesus at the end of this parable. Verse 13, he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the coming, nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. In April of 1988, there was a news report that came on the news of a photographer who was also a skydiver. And he jumped from a plane along with several other skydivers. And as they were plummeting towards the earth, they were, he was filming and um, everything. You could see all the other skydivers pull for their parachute ripcord and the parachute would come out. And then suddenly the video footage on the news went all shaky. And the news reporter reported that the photographer, while he had taken his camera, in all the excitement of watching everybody else and filming everybody else, he had forgotten to take his parachute. It wasn't until he went to reach for the ripcord that he realized his mistake. And of course, he plummeted to his death. That's a tragic story, but God forbid that that should happen to us as well. Friends, now is the time for you and I to have a full experience with Jesus. If the flash of the little light on the spiritual dashboard of your life is on red, you need to pull over and you need to ask Jesus to come into your heart. You need to open your heart and invite the Holy Spirit to come and to do his work in your life. Amen. Because if we plan, if we're not doing anything, if we're not preparing for Jesus to come, if we fail to prepare, then we are preparing to fail. We should not be content with our names to be on the church roll. We shouldn't be content with our address and our phone number on that book, which is out there in the foyer. We need to be having our names in the Lamb's book of life. Amen. And so I ask you, 
and I invite you as I say this to you, I'm asking myself as well, have you been putting off a closer walk with God? Do you sense today that the Holy Spirit is calling you to a deeper experience with Jesus, to a deeper prayer life, a more meaningful devotional life with him? Is there anything in your heart, perhaps lurking in the shadows, which is keeping you away from that closer walk with God? Are you willing to say today, Lord, I choose to surrender any habit, any attitude that is a barrier between me and somebody else or between me and you because I want to have nothing between my soul and the Savior. If that is your desire and you realize today that, yes, the church needs revival, but we need revival personally, then I just invite you to stand wherever you are and I would like to offer prayer for you and for myself because I sense God is calling me. Let's pray. Loving Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the study this morning and for the call to watch and to pray, to be ready because you're coming soon. Lord, we stand because we recognize in our own hearts the need for a closer walk with God. We stand because we want to have nothing between us and you. We want no habit, no attitude, nothing of ourselves to come between us and you. And so, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and to make the necessary changes. We want to be a people that are fully consecrated to you, a people that are healed of everything that is so unchristlike in us. And we want to be a people that you can fill with your spirit and illuminate, illuminate in our hearts so that we can light the way for the coming of the bridegroom so that others can come to know Jesus and have a saving relationship with him as well. We recognize that the hour is late and Jesus is coming soon. Help us, Lord, to be ready when you come by daily walking with you and having our hand firmly in the hand of God. We love you and we look forward to the day when we will not have to pray like this, but we will see you face to face. Until then, Lord, help us to keep our lamps trimmed and burning is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abn Australia all one word .org.au Our postal address is 3abn Australia Inc PO Box 752 Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia Thank you for your prayers and financial support. Hello, my name is Lucas and today I will be telling you an amazing fact. This amazing fact is called Empty Tanks. On July 23rd, 1983, Air Canada Flight 143 ran out of fuel at 41,000 feet. 
The new Boeing 767 jet was only halfway through its trip from Montreal to Edmonton when the aircraft's warning system sounded in the cockpit, indicating a fuel problem on the left side. The pilots naturally assumed that a fuel pump had failed and turned off the alarm. But then a few moments later, a second fuel alarm sounded, followed by a loud bong, and then both engines starving for fuel went silent. Obviously, this had stunned the pilots and terrified the 63 passengers. Without any engine power, most of the cockpit instruments went blank, leaving only a few battery-powered basics. Still disbelieving the jet could be out of fuel, the pilots scrambled to restart the engines. When they saw that this was futile, they began frantically searching for charts for any landing strips within gliding distance that would be long enough to accommodate their rapidly descending jet. They turned towards the nearest landing site, a close airbase at Gimli, Manitoba, 32 kilometers away. What the pilots didn't know was that the decommissioned runway was being used that day as a drag racing strip and was full of cars, campers and people. Without regular engine power, the hydraulic steering became very stiff. Captain Bob Person performed a difficult side-slip maneuver to line up the silently descending aircraft with the runway. As the 767 main gear touched down, the captain stood on the brakes. Then the nose wheel collapsed sending sparks flying 300 feet into the air as the aircraft ploughed down the runway. Miraculously, the crew was able to safely land the jumbo jet and no one was hurt. The subsequent investigation revealed that someone had miscalculated the fuel load. Canadian Airlines had recently adopted the metric system in place of the Imperial system. It takes power to fly an aeroplane up into the blue sky. It also takes power for the Christian to walk worthy of the Lord. If the fuel tank is empty and the engines are not running, you will glide downwards like the Gimli glider. Fortunately, the pilots of Flight 143 made a safe landing, but how many people will crash and burn because they are not filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? I hope you enjoyed the story and the amazing fact. Taken from Amazing Facts, copyright 2017 by Amazing Facts, used with permission. We hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. Donaud was a heroic figure who lived in the 5th and 6th centuries and was director of Christianity in England and Wales around the time of the beginning of the 1260-year prophecy in 538 and led the church during its critical encounter with Augustine, the founder of the papal church in Britain. He was a contemporary of Columba and had received his training from him. Here in Bangor-on-Dee in Wales, a training institute was established that would be key in establishing this country as a mighty force for truth and resisting the advances of Rome for centuries. The school here in Bangor was not a small one with just 20 or 30 students, 
but it would have had hundreds and at times thousands of students. There was one particular story soon after the leaders of the Celtic Church had met with Augustine and rejected his teachings and authority when 1,200 ministerial students from this school were slaughtered. The Welsh Church was one of the sturdiest and withstood much opposition to it, maintaining its stance the longest out of the churches in England, Scotland and Wales. They differed with Rome on many points, but the supremacy of the bishops, celibacy and the Sabbath were three of the main ones. There is much evidence that the Sabbath prevailed in Wales universally until AD 115, when the first Roman bishop was seated at St. David's. The old Welsh Sabbath-keeping churches did not even then altogether bow the knee to Rome, but fled to their hiding places, where the ordinances of the gospel to this day have been administered in their primitive mode without being adulterated by the corrupt church of Rome. So in the 6th and 7th centuries, we see a strong Celtic church. Patrick had been the evangelist in Ireland, Columba in Scotland, Aidan in England, and Dunaud had established a training centre here in Wales. But the gospel would flow from these shores over to Europe through the ministry of a man called Columbanus. He was trained here in Bangor and he would carry the light to France, Switzerland, Germany, and Italy, establishing training centers on the continent. The first place he established a school was in France. Here, along with 13 others who had come with him, these Celtic missionaries lived their lives, reading the scriptures and teaching other people. No longer did the youth of the land have to travel to Ireland, Scotland or Wales to receive training, but right in Europe they could receive an education of the highest standard. Soon this school became too small and he planted another one nearby and then another one nearby, all within 20 miles of each other. Later on in his life, he would plant schools in Switzerland and in Germany. Even as he was nearing the end of his life at 70 years old, he did not slow down. Now settling in Italy, he was joyfully received and the commonality between the faith of the Celtic church and that of the Waldensians was seen as he found a strong bond with the believers there. Refusing to enjoy a comfortable retirement, he asked the king for a place to plant a new center, and the locality of Bobbio, with its ruined church, was given him, and he established a school and library there. He died one year after founding the school in Bobbio, Italy, in the year 615, at the age of 72. He lived a faithful life learning the gospel here in Wales and then dedicating his life to the spreading of the gospel in foreign lands, setting up mission institutes all over Europe. One thing that stands out to us from the life of Columbanus is that he worked for God all the way until the end. He didn't enjoy an easy retirement, but he kept pressing on. No matter who we are, whether we work for the church or whether we don't work for the church, whether we are employed, whether we're unemployed, whether we're old or whether we are young, let us be faithful to God wherever we are, using the talents God has given to us all the way until the end.
view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. It's time for Balanced Living with Vicki Griffin. These doctors still make house calls. No matter how you write the prescription, health care is expensive. We talk a lot about health care benefits, but not nearly enough about self-care benefits. The following eight doctors are specialists in improving mental, physical, and spiritual health. You can use them every day, and they will reduce the risk for many diseases, drugs, and doctor's fees. Now, that's a powerful self-care benefit package. Nutrition. Nourishing food strengthens both the body and the brain. Plant foods are rich in compounds and nutrients that lower stress and improve mental function and mood. Enjoy plenty of fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, beans, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Avoid junk food, saturated animal fat, and trans fats, sugary drinks, caffeine, and large amounts of refined sugar. Almost half our calories come in the form of sweetened beverages like soda pop and fruity drinks. When you ditch those high-calorie drinks, you can watch those unwanted pounds melt away and increase real energy. For a real energy boost, drink at least eight glasses of water a day. When you eat better and drink plenty of water, you will feel better and have energy to make better choices. Fresh air and exercise. Exercise, especially outdoor exercise in nature, improves head as well as heart health. It is critical to mental and physical health. It's been said that motion balances emotion. If you've got the blues, get out under the blue skies and go for a brisk stroll. Exercise lowers stress, depression, and anxiety. It improves mood, well-being, and mental processing. Exercise increases learning power. It helps you improve physical health, reduce disease risk, and achieve a healthful weight. Get into the mindset of daily exercise, and you will experience both head and heart benefits. Claim the promise. He gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Isaiah 40, 29. Rest. Our bodies are designed for mental, physical, and spiritual rest, as well as action. It's important to plan times of recreation, relaxation, and reflection to minimize the depression that is linked to constant mental and physical strain. Also, regular early-to-bed sleep patterns rejuvenate the brain and help control stress hormone and blood sugar levels. Rest reduces irritability fatigue, and stress, and increases energy. New habits and routines are solidified during sleep. So help yourself to a happier, healthier brain by getting adequate, refreshing rest. Controlling stress, getting exercise out in the sun, and avoiding caffeine and late-night eating will promote sound, deep sleep. We are invited into God's healing rest. Come unto me, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight to 30. Attitude. 
Someone once said that a bad attitude is like a flat tire. Unless you change it, you won't get very far. Studies show that a key factor in living a long, healthful life is a sense of meaning and purpose. Cultivate a thankful attitude and check those negative thoughts. Make the choice to focus on solutions rather than problems. And look at difficulties and trials as opportunities for growth. God has promised to impart strength and wisdom for every difficulty. He will help you build the mental metal to face life's problems in a positive way. Let the weak say, I am strong. Joel 3.10 Relationships Cultivating healthy relationships is a lot like cultivating a garden. The more focused attention and care a garden gets, the more fruit it produces. In the same way, taking time to cultivate and maintain positive friendships and social relationships bears the fruit of joy, empathy, and unselfishness. Taking time for healthful relationships creates opportunities for giving as well as receiving. Other benefits include improved immune function, improved social skills, lower stress, improved mood, and longer life. Taking time for relationships is time well spent. Mental fitness. Physical fitness requires determination, perseverance, and practice. So does mental fitness. You can give your brain a workout by engaging in challenging mental activities such as reading inspiring, challenging and educational books, working puzzles, playing a musical instrument, or learning new skills. Such activities increase the brain's neuronal neighborhoods, creating new connections and increasing mental flexibility. Along with a healthful diet and exercise, this improves the speed and accuracy with which the brain can solve problems and meet challenges. Challenge your brain and change your world. Positive choices. Daily positive choices can overcome big, bad habits. Repetition and patience are the keys to crafting a healthy lifestyle. Successful people are not mistake-free. They just refuse to give up. Remember, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 4.13 Spiritual health. Spiritual health is at the center of a healthy lifestyle. It is making peace with God and allowing His plan, purpose, and power to guide your life. Friends, circumstances, and life can be unpredictable and change over time. But God never changes. With God's help, we may achieve steady growth and improvement in our lives, experience forgiveness when we fall short of our goals, and possess courage and cheerfulness to press forward in life's journey. The scriptures teach that Jesus Christ is the great physician who came to establish his kingdom of love, life, and freedom. He can bring renewal and restoration into your life. This eight-step plan, eight doctors, can help you improve mental, physical, and spiritual health and reduce the risk for much needless suffering. His message of love may be calling to your heart right now. My loved ones, it is my prayer that you may do well in all things and be healthy in body, even as your soul does well. 3 John 2 
He is waiting for you now as your great healer, savior, and restorer. Would you like to ask God to help you make daily positive choices in your life? Now is your moment, your opportunity to move forward and enjoy the benefits of more optimal health. You've been listening to Balanced Living, presented by Vicki Griffin. Next, we have a song by Christina, Wash Me Clean, Rock of Ages. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.